نستعينه ونستغفره ونتوب اليه ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله صلى الله عليه وعلى اله وصحبه وسلم وبعد So the topic which I have been asked uh, to address uh, is political revival in the Ummah. And uh, obviously, I mean, we all know the conference, the theme of the conference is uh, Islamic revival, its concept and its application. And what this workshop, uh, the aim behind this workshop is to discuss one aspect of revival, and that is political revival in the Ummah. Uh, some of the concepts and some of the application, how can we go about that? Now, uh, before getting into the topic in earnest, uh, there is certain preliminary things that we must address. You know, whenever you come to the issue of politics, you always find a lot of argumentation. And you always find a lot of differences. And part of that is due to people differing as to what they're talking about. I mean, in other words, when I say the word political revival, the Ummah is the word politics, I might have one meaning in my mind, and the listener, or the person I'm having a conversation with, might have another meaning in his mind, it's what is politics. And so therefore, a lot of times argumentation occurs, or differences occur, because we haven't agreed initially as to what we're talking about. I mean, exactly what are we describing, you know, or what are we, the topic that is at hand. So it's important that, you know, we discuss, you know, each term in, in the name of the workshop, political revival in the Ummah. So let's start with the word politics. And what do I mean by the term politics? Well, by politics here, I do not mean the government of a certain country, nor do I mean a certain party, political party on the scene, or a certain movement and their prospects of winning uh, you know, seats in an election or taking control of the country. That, that's not the discussion here. What we're talking about is that the term, which in Arabic is siyasa, uh, has been defined by some of the scholars, which, like one scholar has defined it, one classical scholar, is that it's the protecting of the religion and the running of the affairs of the Muslims by Islam. So by politics, and therefore we're discussing two matters. Protecting the religion, guarding the religion of Islam, and also running the affairs of the Muslims, organizing the affairs of the Muslims through Islam, by Islam. So the way that the Muslims deal with one another and deal with other people, non-Muslims, is by Islam. And by revival, of course, I'm sure you heard a lecture when the first lectures was about the concept of revival. The reference is, of course, to the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, reported by Abu Dawood and others, that Allah, at the beginning of each century, would raise for the ummah those who would revive for it the affair of its religion. And the ummah, of course, we're talking about the ummah of Muhammad ﷺ. And we're not talking about the situation in a specific part of the ummah in specific. We're talking about the Ummah as a whole. So, now that we've set out these terms, we have a framework where we can proceed with the discussion now. 
And I think the most important of the terms, at least, is that we understand when I talk about politics, I do, what I mean here is that the protecting of the religion and the running of the affairs of the Muslims through the religion. Interestingly, if you take a historical approach to the issue of revival, the first revival in Islam was primarily a political revival. You know, almost the scholars are almost in agreement, if not in agreement, that the first mujaddid of this religion, at the turn of the second century, around the year 100 Hijrah, was Umar bin Abdul Aziz. And Umar bin Abdul Aziz was a scholar, and he's one who gave the command that the Sunnah be written, because the Sahaba had basically died out as a generation, and, and Hadith were being reported without really having the chains of confirmation, so he gave the order for the revival, uh, or the writing down and the compilation of the Sunnah, which started the process, which eventually led to the great books of Hadith that we have on Bukhari and Muslim and so forth. And likewise, Umar bin Abdul Aziz dealt with the different heretical groups. You will find in, in the books of uh, Hadith and the books of history, you find that Umar bin Abdul Aziz wrote uh, debated with the different heretical groups and likewise he also you know fought the different heretical groups Umar bin Aziz engaged in jihad so I mean, he he had he was also a very pious man known for his worship and his asceticism but even with all these qualities of his life he is most known for that during the two years that he was Khalifa you know after two years he died he brought back the way of governing the Muslims to how it was during the era of the first four Khulafa who are known as those Khulafa or successors to the Prophet or Khulafa Rashidin who, 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 who ran the affairs of the Ummah according to the method or the way of the Prophet And that's why one of the honorific terms, titles given to Umar bin Abdul Aziz is that he is the fifth, right, of the five righteous guided khulafa sometimes they say as an honorific, an honorific term or title for him so the first revival in the ummah was political now subsequent revivals in the ummah in the centuries afterwards dealt with other matters due to the deviation in the ummah occurring in other matters so when the ummah starts to deviate for instance in aqidah in belief and creed and they, and they questioned whether the Quran was truly the words of Allah you find the revival which was instigated at the time of Imam Ahmed, for instance, was primarily one of Aqidah. And then, four centuries after that, in the time of Ibn Taymiyyah, it also dealt with a number of matters. Aqidah, creed, worship, conduct, politics. So as deviation increased in different spheres of Islam, or different spheres of you know, Muslims practicing Islam, revival occurred in those different spheres. Now, why did I bring up this point? Just because the point is, is that for many who adhere to the way of the Sunnah, unfortunately they have an idea, and this is, this is a, an incorrect idea, that revival is only limited to teaching and aqidah and so forth. But in reality, revival is to be wherever there is any sort of deviation. So if there's deviation in beliefs of people, revival must be done to rectify the beliefs of people. 
And if there's deviation in the way people worship Allah, then resolve must be done in worship. And if there's deviation in the way that people treat one another, revival must be done in that. And likewise, if there is deviation in the way people run their societies, and how Muslim societies deal with non-Muslim societies, then there must be also revival in that. That's what the topic which I've been asked to discuss. Now, you know, the conference has been is entitled Islamic Revival in Concept and in Application. And so conceptually is a good place where we should start. I mean, revival conceptually, how does that occur? How would that occur in the Ummah? Well, the first point is, what is the role of politics in religion? Throughout the world, the notion of secularism, that we should render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, and render unto God that which is God's, is the prevalent belief in the world today among Muslims and non-Muslims and religion and politics should not mix and there's a reason for that because since Western civilization which among its main characteristics is that it's a secular civilization as, as it is today is the ascendant civilization in the world today or the ascendant power in the world today in the sense that they're the ones who are really running the show in the world today right they have the most influence and so forth. So their ideas and their notions have transmitted throughout all the peoples of the world. And since they are basically of secular nature, then it has become accepted by people that secularism is really the correct way to run a society. It was that if it was in the correct way, then these people wouldn't have been in the position that they are, where they're at the top of the ladder in the world today terms of wealth and power and status. And so therefore, unfortunately, the Muslims have this notion of secularism. And part of it is because of the spread of these ideas, and part of it is due to colonialism, when the unbelievers took over large portions of the Islamic world. In the last two centuries, they replaced the ways of education, the programs of you know, commerce, and the programs of government with their own first run by the colonial masters and then eventually with people who were raised by the colonial masters in their schools. And so, you know, generations now, two, three generations of Muslims have been raised in a secular environment. So that all they understand is that, you know, Islam is okay, you go to the masjid, you read Quran, but that's it. Islam doesn't have a role, for instance, in how public behavior should be. So, you know, these Muslims who now want to say, well, you know, women shouldn't be walking around in the streets of an Islamic country not wearing hijab. Well, they're extreme. Because, you know, I mean, if she wants to wear the hijab, that's fine when she goes to the mosque. But when she goes to public, she can be wearing whatever she wants. I mean, this is the, the understanding of many Muslims. And now when you tell them that, well, for instance, the banking system in the country, and the way the economic system is run, is not really correct because it's based upon interest, and interest has been forbidden by Allah, they say, well, how can you have a modern economic you know, system without that? So, you know, fine, you don't want to you know, put your money in the bank, you want to put it underneath your, your mattress at home, that's fine. But in order for it to have a strong economy, we need to have banks and, you know, so forth. So, what has happened is, is that with many Muslims, even though they pray and they fast and they, you know, and try to adhere to teaching Islam to the best of their ability, because secularism has become the way and the norm for now for a couple of generations 
people know no other way of life but that. And they think this is the correct way. And in actuality, it opposes what Islam is about 100%. I mean, it's completely antithetical to Islam. Because when we say that we testify that Muhammad is a messenger of Allah, so when we testify that there is no God but Allah, it means we only worship Allah. When we testify that only Muhammad is a messenger of Allah, it means that we're going to worship Allah by the way of Muhammad, the way that he came with, the Sharia, his law. And Muhammad, the, the Sharia that Muhammad brought to humanity, the law, is not just the message. But it deals with economics, it deals with relations between countries, it deals with you know, relations between husband and wife, it deals with the whole sphere of human activity. Allah has rulings and regulations that need to be applied. And in fact, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us in the Quran that He sent the Prophet Muhammad with guidance and the true religion so that this guidance, this true religion may be manifested over all ways of life. Even if the pagans find it distasteful. So one of the aims that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had in sending the Prophet Muhammad was that this sharia of Muhammad would become ascendant over all ways of life on the earth. And that there would be no other way of life that human beings would adhere to except that of Islam. Now, that doesn't mean they're forcefully brought to the religion of Islam. No. Because if they want to remain as unbelievers, they can. They pay some money, you know what I'm saying, and they, pay, they stay in a subjugated state in the Islamic country. But the point is that the way of life, the way that society is, the way the norms are, will be according to the Sharia. And then what they personally decide to choose is a different matter. It's a different matter. So, conceptually, the most important point, you know, in the revival, uh, political revival in Islam now, is to discuss the issue of secularism. And to show that secularism and Islam do not match. That part of our testimony that there is none worthy of worship but Allah and that Muhammad is the messenger of Allah necessitates that we worship Allah according to the Sharia. And this necessitates that the society is run by the Sharia. And here's an interesting point. Now, if you look at the books of fiqh, written classically, let's take the Hanbali books of fiqh. Classically, the scholars used, you know, when they start the books of fiqh, really irrespective of which school they're from, they usually begin with a tahara, purity. And there's a reason why, because the most important action in Islam is prayer. And the most important condition, prerequisite for prayer, is what? Purity. And whenever you want to make salah, the first thing you, you, you ask yourself is, that, am I in a pure state? Or do I have to go make wudu? Or do I have to make ghusl? So that's the first thing. So they would start with purity and they would pr- explain prayer. And after that they would explain zakat, which is the next pillar, and then fasting, and then hajj. Now, classically, the scholars, in the earliest works, they used to put jihad at the end. It would be the last topic they would discuss. However, though, Later on, some scholars start to put it after Hajj. And they start to explain why they put the discussion of in the book, you know what I'm saying, when they're organizing their chapters. Why would they talk about jihad after Hajj? Well, they would say because one reason is because jihad is an act of worship. I mean, unlike marriage and divorce and buying and selling, which are basically interactions between human beings jihad also has it has an aspect of interaction but it also has an act, of, an act of worship in it to Allah that's one reason so they said it fits good to stick it after Hajj 
Second reason is because some scholars consider it to be the sixth pillar of Islam. And so therefore, after talking about the five, you know, of course, the testimony of faith is the aqidah, but the four act, actions, and then it would be good to mention jihad. And the third reason they mention the books of fiqh is that they realize, the scholars, that the other pillars, prayer, zakah, fasting, and hajj, cannot exist unless there is a state which defends and promotes these acts of worship. And that without it, a state, Muslims are not able to pray, or to fast, or to give hajj, or to make hajj, or to give zakah, as Allah wants them. And so therefore, in order to have a state, I mean, it's just, that's how the world is. If you have something, somebody else will want to take it from you. So you have to defend it. But so if you have to defend it, it's going to be a jihad. So this was their reasoning. So my point is, by bringing this illustration, I mean, why did I bring up this example, is that, you know, even the notion that many people have, that you can actually worship Allah, and not live in an Islamic society, is a faulty and really an incorrect notion. That you really cannot truly worship Allah as He wants, and as He has created you for, unless you're living in an Islamic society. And let's, let's be honest with ourselves. Prayer. According to the strongest opinion of the scholars, prayer is required for men in congregation. Now, for most Muslims, I mean, observant Muslims in the United States who are working, how often do you have a Muslim who has the opportunity of offering a prayer in congregation, especially Zohar and Asr, which is done during like the work day, right? So here, right here, you have the first pillar of Islam, right? Which is Salah. You know, you have neglected a very important aspect of it in the sense that for most Muslims, I would say, except for very few are maybe fortunate they have their own business or they work with other Muslims, for the overwhelming majority of the Muslims who work for non-Muslims, you know, they cannot give off their Dhuhr and Asr prayers in congregation. This is a problem. But all those Muslims who don't, cannot pray at all, you know what I'm saying, or take it as an excuse not to pray, or for instance those Muslims who cannot attend Jumu'ah and so forth, right? Alright. Zakat. Well, Zakat, while it is true that it, you can, yourself, you can just take your zakah and give it to a poor person, right? However, the, the, there is an institution for the giving of the zakah. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, in mentioning the eight categories of the recipients of those people in Surah Tawbah, mentioned that those workers who work to collect the zakah. And so therefore, if there are workers who are, who are working to collect the zakah, they are allowed to receive part of the zakah, right? Then those workers have to be organized, and they have to be able to know who the poor are, Okay, and they have to be able to reach the poor, and they have to then make sure that Muslim companies give their zakat, and Muslim individuals give their zakat, and make sure that it's taken there, and if they don't give their zakat, they need to be penalized, right, for that and so forth. These are all functions of what? Functions of a state. Just like now, right, with the IRS, right, if you don't pay your taxes in April, right, they check on you and they make sure they get your money from you during the year and if you don't pay it they you know, put you to court and if they find you guilty they put you in jail and they take that tax money and they distribute it amongst the poor in their way right? And the functions of a state okay comes the fast what about the fast of Ramadan? well one of the major aspects of the fast is the beginning determining the beginning of the fast and the end of the fast and the one who ultimately has the decision to accept a witness or to negate a testimony of a witness is a judge. My brother Stanford said, I saw the moon of Ramadan. 
So how do we know if this testimony is acceptable or not? There should be a judge who would accept that testimony or not. Okay, who's going to appoint the judge? And then also, if there's conflicting reports, who's going to make the final arbitration? That's the functions of the imam. And if there's an imam, if there's a ruler, that means there's assumed a state. And when there's not a state, what do you find? You find the same, you find the opposite, like we have in the United States every single year, where continuously, there's always argumentation about the beginning and the end of the month of Ramadan. Because there's no final authority to say that this testimony is acceptable, or this is the determination of the beginning and the end. And likewise with Hajj, uh, although it now, for instance, in, um, in Western societies, there is a freedom of movement, in the sense that if you want to make Hajj, you know, say, and you in your exterior of an American passport, or you have a Canadian passport, or a British passport, you know, Western societies allow their citizens freedom of movement, so you can actually, you know, get on a plane and make Hajj and so forth, make Armand. Nobody's going to say to you no, right? For Muslims who live in other parts of the world, like under communist rule, for instance, they don't have the right to make Hajj. Muslims in China can't make Hajj. Muslims who were living in the Soviet Union before it became Russia, you know what I'm saying, also could not make Hajj. And historically, Muslims who were living in Europe under Catholic rule, before the West changed its political philosophy to secularism, were unable to make Hajj. This was one of the problems for the Muslims who were in Spain, who remained in an Andalus in Spain after the Christians took it over. They were cut off from the other part of the Ummah until they were eventually absorbed and they lost their Islamic identity. Because they were not allowed to make Hajj. They were not allowed to leave, you know. So my point is by this illustration is that, you know, that even your acts of worship, and even if we were to accept just on face value the secular argument that, you know, religion should be stuck to the message only, right? And should not in, in, into the public sphere, right? That in reality, even the acts that we're supposed to do in the masjid, we cannot do them as Allah has wanted us to do them, unless there is some sort of political authority which guarantees that it's done correctly. And that's why you find countries which have, I mean, in the Islamic world, countries which have a political system which is more in line with the Sharia, right? The Muslims have a freedom of worshipping Allah much more and enjoy the blessings of being able to worship Allah much more than they do in those countries which are have a political system which is antithetical to Islam. And so for instance, like the Muslims of the Arabian Peninsula, because those political systems are more closer to Islam than for instance Muslims who live in those countries which have adopted a radical, uh, you know, like almost secular or like socialist agenda, communist agenda for instance, the Muslims in that part of the Islamic world have a much more freedom to practice Islam in terms of fasting and worshipping Allah in the Masjid. And for instance, Muslims who live in those countries which are, you know, have a very uh, secular regime which is, uh, also has an antithetical anti-religious regime, like those who adhere to a communist or to a socialist philosophy. Alright? So, the point is that conceptually, in order to revise the part of political revival of Islam, is to explain what is the role of politics in Islam, and to discuss the notion of secularism, which is probably, if not the most, but at least then amongst the most greatest dangers that the Muslim world faces today. And I believe tomorrow night I have a lecture with the brothers, or tomorrow morning, about the secularization of Islam. I thought well, we can enter into that a little bit more. Also, part of the revival conceptually is to explain certain ideas. I mean, for instance, now, when you ask most people, okay, what is the purpose of authority? When you think of a politician in your mind now, 
whether a Muslim politician or a non-Muslim politician, what do you think, that, uh, or a political party, right? What is the purpose of authority? The, the notion that comes to your mind now is that, well, these people are in politics in order to serve their own interest. Make money, you know, or serve their party or whatever. I mean, that's the people's, you know, notions around the world, irrespective of their religion, their creed, their ideology, or whatever. But what is the purpose of authority in Islam? I mean, why are there people in charge in Islam? What is the role of authority? And how is authority selected? Most people don't know. How would a, a Muslim ruler come about? And do we vote him in? Is like, you know, do we have a Islamic Republican Party and Islamic Democratic Party? I mean, what, what, is, this, what is the system? Is it a, a monarchy? And most people don't know. So part of political revival in Islam is to explain the role of authority, how authority is brought about in Islam, what are the rights of the person in charge? What are the duties of the person in charge? And so forth. This is part of the conceptual um, approaches. And part of that is that, you know, you have to contrast then the Islamic way of political authority or, or the use of, uh, use of authority as opposed to the other prevalent systems. I mean, for instance, now there's much discussion about Islamic banking versus non-Islamic banking. And a lot of people try to talk, and even though there are not very many Islamic banks in the world, and even those Islamic banks which are existing, their, their transactions are not purely 100% halal, because they're part of the global banking system. But there is a lot of discussion about you know, Islamic banks and Islamic alternatives, economic alternatives, and so therefore raising the awareness of the ummah when that happens. And so therefore also part of raising the awareness of the ummah about political authority and so forth, and the use of it and the aim of it is part of that. And here we find that basically Muslims are four groups concerning this, conceptually. You have those Muslims who want to westernize Islam. And we'll talk about them more tomorrow on the secularization of Islamic thought. In other words, they want to take, for instance, the democratic system and wholesale it and plant it in the Islamic world. And they try to argue, for instance, that shura is equivalent to democracy. And that we are the first Democrats, or we are the first Republicans, or so forth. Twisting of the facts. That's one group. Another group is an extreme group, which seeing the political uh, situation not being according to the way of the Sharia, believe that the only approach to do is to burn everything down. And these are the Muslims who use violence as a means of change. And this is another incorrect approach. It goes against the way of the Prophet A third group of people sort of have the opinion that, well, it's a, it's a, it's a very, you know, uh, confusing situation. It's a very... Uh, problematic situations, the best thing we should do is just sit and wait. And some of them say we should just stick to educating. And so therefore they have the approach of almost separating themselves from society. Because education cannot be, reach its full impact unless the state agrees to that educational system. Let's take an example. So we don't talk in a, in a theoretic sort of way, theoretical sort of way. Look at Turkey. Recently Turkey uh, elected a few years ago uh, a party, a political party, which had Islamic leanings. Okay? And in those two years so that that political party was there, they opened up a number of Quranic memorization schools for the, for the kids. Now what happened was when they forced this government out, they forced the Prime Minister out, what is the first thing the, 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 the political system tried to do now? Close down these schools. Okay? So here you see how politics and education have a direct impact because in the modern concept of the state 
The state is not like the state it was classically 600, 700 years ago. I mean, if you look at political systems 700 years ago in the time of Ibn Taymiyyah, or even before Ibn Taymiyyah, basically politics meant what? Is that there was a ruler who had an army around him, soldiers, who lived in a citadel, or a castle and so forth, you know, and the people were sort of left to do what they wanted to do as long as they paid some sort of revenue to that ruler. And that's basically what it was. And that also, when that ruler would engage into a war, the able-bodied men would be required to engage into the war. So, for the Muslims, even if the ruler was corrupt, or was impious, it didn't affect, necessarily, the way that they could conduct their businesses. They had their own schools, they had their universities, and life sort of went on according to Sharia. But with the modern concept of the state, which occurred in Europe about 200 years ago, 150 years ago, you know, the state now runs everything. So, you know, the state enters into education, it enters into commerce, it enters into, you know, even to behavior, right? And, you know, and now even issues where how you marry and how you divorce must be registered in, in a state court, for instance, uh, that, you know, what is permissible, they can interfere into the way you raise your children, and so forth. These are all problems which are, exist, which in a classical way did not exist because the concept of the state was different historically. So of these, th- these three approaches are all incorrect. You finally have a fourth approach, which basically says, this fourth approach says that, well, you know, we have to worship Allah, and we must work to revive the Ummah in all its aspects. And so therefore we must revive the Ummah in belief, in worship, in conduct, and also politically. That we take Islam as a whole, and we act upon it as a whole. We don't try to just take part of Islam and not leave another part. Now, yes, of course, there are priorities. And the Sharia has defined which is more important than the other matter. And sometimes there's room for differences in priorities, and sometimes there's not a room for differences in priorities, differences of opinions and priorities. But the point is, is that the philosophy or the, the direction is that Islam must be taken as a whole. As Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said in the Quran, Enter into Islam only. Now, in terms of practical measures, in terms of practical revival, I mean, I don't want to get to... How much, how much time is enough in this picture? So, huh? Half an hour or less? 45 minutes? Okay, we have time. So, I mean, I don't want to get too much into the application of, uh, of political revival because, I mean, Muslims have different experiences and they have different uh, approaches to that. But I'd like to sort of set out some basic principles that must be discussed or must should be upheld by Muslims who enter into political revival. Now, the first one is that, you know, you cannot, in, in politics, or political revival of the Ummah, give up anything of the truth. I mean, Islam is not a political platform. Islam is not a social movement. It's a religion of Allah. And so therefore, there can never be a compromise of the truth. Yes, sometimes one might not be able to apply the truth because of the circumstances. But one can never compromise the truth by giving up something of his beliefs or giving up something of what is required of him. And let's give an example. The Prophet ﷺ in Al-Hudaybiyah, when he was asked, you know, he went to make Umrah with his companions, and the Meccan, the pagan Meccan stopped them and were not allowed to proceed to make Umrah. So then they decided to have a truce between the Muslims and the pagan Meccans. And in the truce, the pagans put certain conditions and stipulations upon the Prophet ﷺ, which many Muslims thought was severe. I mean, so much so that Umar even questioned the Prophet on that day and said, are we not upon the truth? Did you not promise us that we would enter into Mecca? How can we go back? 
Among the stipulations, for instance, was when they wrote the truth treaty, the Prophet wanted to write from Muhammad, the messenger of Allah, and they, they said, no, we'll not accept your title as messenger of Allah, because if we believe that you were the messenger of Allah, we would have fought you. Say from Muhammad, the son of Abdullah. And the Prophet agreed, and Ali, who was writing for the Prophet said, I'm not going to erase that which I wrote. The Prophet said, point to me where it was, the Prophet was illiterate, and he erased it himself. So here, did the Prophet compromise with the truth? No. He was the messenger of Allah. And he didn't stop teaching people and calling humanity to believe that he was the messenger of Allah, right? But because of the situation, he was in a, in a position where <clears throat> the greater benefit was that, that to write it on the document was not going to result in him giving up his da'wah. And so therefore, people have to distinguish between compromising the truth, which often many people who enter into politics do, they end up giving up the truth, giving up some aspect of the truth, and that of being compelled due to the situation and circumstances that one chooses the lesser of two evils with his remaining upon the truth. Now, how does one determine what is the better course of action or what is the better way? Well, the Sharia tells us that. It's not based upon one's personal feeling. That's the second principle. That in determining what is the better course of action, it's the Sharia, it is the regulations and principles in Allah's book, the Quran, and in the Sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ, in the Hadith, which teaches us which course of action to take. And so therefore, the Prophet ﷺ, it was from his wisdom and fiqh that one day he held back from applying the hudud, the punishment. Who was disregarding? Well, when, you know, his wife, Aisha, one time the Prophet was in a battle and the Muslims were in an encampment and Aisha, you know, she used to, or the Prophet's wife used to sit on the top of a camel in a sort of like a little enclosure, okay? And Aisha was a young girl, so she was light in weight. And she had left that enclosure, but she dropped the necklace, and she wanted to find her necklace. So when the Prophet gave the order to move, they'd left the, the caravan and so forth, and they thought Aisha was inside that little enclosure. But she was out looking for her necklace. Anyway, it was the Prophet's practice was that after they would break camp, that he would send men back to the camp to pick up anything that the Muslims might have left behind. So when he sent one of the companions back to that, you know, it was his duty, it was his task, he comes to the campsite, and who does he find? He finds Aisha there, by herself in the middle of the desert. So he's now in a predicament. He can't leave uh, a Muslim lady in the middle of the desert, let alone the mother of the believers, let alone the Prophet's wife, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And he was a young man. So all he did was, he brought her his camel, and the camel, you know, sat, and she rode the camel, and he turned his back, and just took the camel by its, its noose, or its, uh, you know, rope, and just walked back to Medina. So when they entered into Medina, the hypocrites saw this, they started to spread a rumor that there was some sort of infidelity on the part of Aisha with this young man. And this disturbed the Prophet And he was very angered because the rumor was spreading. Now, when it came time, when the verses were revealed in Surah Nur, clearing Aisha 
and putting the injunction that whoever accuses a Muslim woman of, of being unchaste and not able to produce four witnesses that he is to be whipped and his testimony never to be accepted ever again the main hypocrite of Medina Abdullah bin Ubayy bin Sulud belonged to one of the two factions of Medina because the people of Medina were a single tribe but they were two sub-tribes the Aus and the Khazraj and so when it came time to implement the punishment on him members of the other tribe said let's implement the punishment on him so members of his own tribe some of the, the preeminent companions those who in Medina received the Prophet and were the main com- of the Ansar said you only said that because he was from that tribe because he's from our tribe that's why you weren't with him so, they, and, so then another companion who was from the other tribe said you're a hypocrite also defending the hypocrites and in the Prophet's message they started to argue and so the Prophet did not apply the punishment upon this hypocrite even though he was the instigator of Hanal he applied it on others but he didn't apply it upon him why? because the harm that would have resulted in the application of the Hadood would have split the Muslims in Medina would have been greater than any benefit gained by whipping this one man so here did the Prophet give up anything of the truth? no he still applied the Hadood on some of them but because the wisdom was such that the benefit outweighed this harm he took this benefit or it was a lesser of two evils it's a lesser evil to is it a, is it a greater evil for the Muslims to be split and fighting amongst themselves or is it a greater evil for you not to apply the hadood on one person the punishment on one person obviously the latter is a lesser evil so here's an example of but how do we determine this of course the determination is made by the sharia I mean you can't by yourself to think well it, you know, it seems to me there's a greater evil here it seems to me no greater evil is there it seems to me the better course you know it's not about a, a, a feeling that one gets or you know it's, but it's based upon the knowledge of the sharia and its regulations the, the, the other principle which must be understood in political activity in the application is that the results are in Allah's hands Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has promised victory for this ummah and has promised that this ummah and this religion would cover the earth and that there would be no place where night and day appear which means the whole earth, right? except this religion will be established not that there will be Muslims but the religion will be established which means it would be the predominant way of life however though when this will occur and upon whose hands it occurs is not for us to decide but rather it is for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to decree that upon whoever's hands and that's why the Prophet died and just Arabia was in Islam but then he died and he knew and he promised his companions that they would conquer Syria they would conquer Persia they would conquer Rome and then they would even conquer the Antichrist at the end of time and they knew that to be true but the Prophet himself didn't witness any of that he only witnessed Arabia entering into the fold of Islam and he sent the letters out to the different kings calling them to Islam but then he died and so therefore to understand that you know we are to work and worship Allah and obey Allah and try to apply Allah's religion but the results are in Allah's hands and if Allah decrees that victory comes upon our hand Alhamdulillah we then get to see the blessings of our work in this world and inshallah in the hereafter but if Allah decrees that the blessings come in on somebody else's hands after you you know a generation or two this is Allah's decree and that your duty is only to worship Allah part of the political revival in the Ummah practically is to understand that time is part of the cure you know part of 
revival of the Ummah is going to take time. And the Ummah didn't end up in this situation overnight. It wasn't like in 
the Jewish tribes was in a, in a covenant with them and they broke the covenant yet he still kept the means of communication open to them because the aim is that one and so therefore these people who are your enemy today, tomorrow might be in your line defending Islam and look at Umar ibn Khattab he went out with a purpose to kill the Prophet came back defending Islam and bringing the Muslims publicly according to the report they went publicly I mean even though the Hanif has some sort of talk about his chain of narrators that after he became Muslim they went publicly and they announced their Islam publicly for the first time in front of the Kaaba in front of all the, the companions so the chain of you know the channels of communication excuse me are constantly open and finally the last matter in terms of political activity is that the the map of the political map needs to be understood that is who are the movers and shakers in the society what are the forces that people are being influenced by where are the power centers you know because if you're going to be now trying to change you need to be aware of this and that's why the argument that some people have today uh, and they're using the argument of uh, I mean as this is the, the da'wah of the Prophet's companions the setup that a Muslim should be not have any understanding of contemporary affairs is a, a ludicrous uh, 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 argument and, and strikes fully against the teachings of the Quran and Sunnah. Because there's no way, I mean, for instance, let's take a very, very simple example. You want to be a judge, and you want to now be a judge, and, and so people come to you, litigants, they have disputes, and you're supposed to judge between them. One of the characteristics of the judge is that he has to be able to understand their talk. He has to understand the way that they deal with each other. Because every people have a way of, of communicating. And if he cannot understand the way they communicate, right? If he doesn't understand the way their practices, the way they live their lives, he will not be able to dispense a lot of judgment in their case. And that's why in all the books of Sikh, when they talk about the qualities of the Qadli, the judge, is that he understands the people, the way they live, the way they talk, and so forth. So he's not misunderstand the cases presented in front of them. Okay, so this is for a judge dealing with two litigants. How much more so does understanding have to do if you're talking about nations and societies and millions of human beings that you want to change? Obviously, you have to be aware of the beliefs, of the powers, of the ideas, the influences. Otherwise, you'd not be able to, you know, affect any change. Even if, it just, as you, even if you were just trying to... Minorities. And in the sense that we are a Muslim minority living in a non-Muslim society, what about the role of politics for us? And here, I would like to quote or paraphrase uh, a scholar who lived about 50 years ago, uh, who was a great scholar in Arabia, uh, by the name of Abdurrahman uh, bin Sa'di. And he wrote a commentary of the Quran among his works. And in his commentary, he discussed a verse. Uh, in the Quran where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions that the pagans told the Prophet Shu'ayb that had it not been for your family we would have stoned you and not if your people we would have stoned you so in other words the pagans told the Prophet Shu'ayb their prophet that you know, had it not been for your position in society the fact that you have a tribe which you belong to and you have a family which we do not want to anger or we're afraid of or whatever their motivation is, you know, we would have killed you. So, you know, Abdurrahman ibn Sa'id, he discusses this verse and he discusses how, you know, this shows that 
the Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will use different means in order to defend the believer and to strengthen him and to assist him. And then he talks about, you know, Muslims living in a non-Muslim society. And he says, if Muslims live in a non-Muslim society, they can make that society, you know, he uses the term uh, Republican, which in, I guess in Arabic here it means what we would call in English democratic, so that they would have more rights by which they can preserve their religion and even preserve their worldly interests, that would be better. And of course the best he then says is that they could make the country Islamic themselves. So obviously any means by which Muslims, right, can take preserving their religion, okay, and not losing the truth, but at the same time guaranteeing their rights to worship Allah or allowing them more opportunities to worship Allah or even, or even if it's just to guarantee their worldly interests this is something which is required for Muslims to take and to actively pursue and to exploit to their benefit but at the same time withholding those principles and they do not give up their religion in the process now finally um, uh, there is one thing I wanted to mention before I close uh, that I wanted to read uh, because I know that you know, perhaps still there might be some people in the audience who still feel uneasy about politics. They say, well, you know, we want to follow the Sunnah, and politics and Sunnah, you know, I mean, can't mix. How could they mix? So I wanted to read something uh, from a scholar, which I would imagine that all the audience or, or would agree to his scholarship, and also would agree that um, I mean, he's you know, his knowledge and so forth. And that's Ibn Taymiyyah. Ibn Taymiyyah wrote a book concerning uh, politics and Sharia. And he, I want to just read a couple of quotes from it. Uh, he says that it should be known that the exercise of authority for the benefit of people is one of the greatest religious duties. In other words, to the authority, the exercise of authority, the implementation of political authority is among the greatest religious duties that you draw close to Allah with. And then he says, neither religion or worldly affairs can be established without it. And he gives an example. He says the children of Adam, you know, human beings in other words, cannot ensure their common interests except by meeting together. In other words, Allah created us human beings in such a way that, you know, none of us can lose by himself. I mean, in order to, you know, gain your benefits, you have to live in a group. I mean, you know, a human being can't just live by himself and survive. He'll end up dying. I mean, all human beings have to live in a group. And so Ibn Taymiyyah says that, you know, this is Allah's creation. He did it this way. And so, because everyone is in need of another one, and when, they, when human beings are together, it's inevitable that they would have to put somebody in charge. Because whatever people put together, you have to have somebody in charge. I mean, here's an audience, right? There has to be a speaker. There has to be some sort of, you know, system to it. And even the Prophet ﷺ, for this reason, said that if three are on a journey, they should choose one of them as in charge of them. And he says, well, if the Prophet ﷺ said for even a small gathering, on a temporary basis, like a journey, traveling, three people, they should put one in charge and how much more so when you have people living constantly together and so how much more so if there's an ummah of a billion people how much more so should they have some sort of authority I mean it's just it, it's you know common sense let alone religious you know duty and so then Ibn Taymiyyah says it is therefore incumbent to take authority not just apply but to take it to actively seek it and pursue it as a religious act and a good deed by which one draws closer to Allah for seeking to be nearer to Allah by taking authority through obedience to Him and to His Messenger is among the best of deeds. And then Ibn Taymiyyah says, 
But what happened? When a great many of people in authority became dominated by their greed for wealth and love of status. In other words, they used authority in order just to increase their wealth and increase their status in society, you know, the control of people. They became, they left the, the responsibilities, the religious responsibilities in authority. So people began to feel that authority negates faith and the perfected, perfection of religion. So he explained that the reason why Muslims, you know, many pious Muslims, shy away from authority is because they think that, you know, authority and politics negates being righteous and, and, and pious. Because they see impious people in charge. And he says, no. That's not the point. The point is, just because they're impiously abused authority for their own personal gain, does not negate that this is among the greatest religious deeds that the righteous people should then seek in order to exploit for obedience to the law. So then Ibn Taymiyyah describing this group of scholars, he said they became concerned only with religion and turned away from that which in reality religion is incomplete without it. So he's saying religion is incomplete without authority. Others understood the need for authority, so they took it and they turned away from religion due to the belief that authority negates religion. In other words, I can't be in charge of a pious. So religion became, in the viewpoint of the latter, a place of mercy and meekness, not one of supremacy and might. And so then Ibn Taymiyyah says that the straight path, okay, um, he goes on saying that these two corrupt ways, the way of those who attribute to themselves religion but does not complete it with the need of authority and jihad and wealth, and those who have turned to authority, wealth and, you know, power, but seek and not to establish Allah's religion, they are those who have incurred Allah's wrath and they have gone astray. The former are like the Christians, and the latter are like the Jews. So Ibn Taymiyyah says those political leaders in the Ummah who use their authority in order for their self-interest, they're like the Jews. And those religious leaders in the Ummah who do not seek political authority because they think it goes against religious, they're like the Christians. They're astray. And then he says, rather the straight path, the path of those whom Allah has blessed among the prophets, the truthful, the martyrs, and the righteous, the path of our Prophet Muhammad, and the path of his successors and companions, and all those who follow their path, the path of the Muhajirin and the Ansar, and those who follow the good, in other words, the Salaf, okay, is to join the two together. And then he says, he concludes by saying, it is the duty of every Muslim to strive in achieving that to his utmost ability. And hence, whoever is given authority and seeks by it obedience of Allah and establishment of what he can of his religion and the common interests of the Muslims and establishes amongst them what he can of obligatory duties and removes what he can of forbidden and evil acts, he will not be held responsible for what he is incapable of. So if you're a Muslim and you have some sort of authority and you try your utmost to use that, you will be rewarded for the good that you did. And what you're incapable of, because the system as a whole does not allow it, well, will not hold you responsible for it. Because you're incapable, not because you don't want to do it, or you seek to do the opposite. And then, he said, then, he, then Ibn Taymiyyah says that for taking of authority by the righteous is better than the taking of authority by the wicked. And he says, whoever is incapable of establishing the religion by authority in jihad, so he does what he is able to from the good, he will not be charged to do what he is incapable of. For the establishment of this religion is through the guiding book, the book which guides the Qur'an, and a victorious piece of iron, meaning the sword, as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us in the Qur'an. And so therefore it is upon everyone to strive his utmost to join the Qur'an and the sword for the sake of Allah, 
and that which is with him, seeking his aid, Allah's aid, in completing that task. And those are very precious words which really don't need uh, much comment. And I hope, you know, by that, I was able to shed some light as in terms of political authority in the uh, political revival in the Ummah in terms conceptually and, and in terms of applying it. I guess if there's any questions or comments, please feel free. Uh, do not feel shy if you disagree. I mean, just go out and, you know, um, inshallah ta'ala, you find me an open person. I'm willing to listen to, you know, your comments. Uh, you said that um, the, the communication must stay open. Can you just elaborate on that a little bit? Well, in the sense that, you know, the A is and guiding humanity. So even if, let's take the worst possibility, you're at war with somebody. And that's the worst possibility. You're actually actively seeking to kill him and he's actually seeking to kill you, right? But your aim is not, our aim is not just to kill, you know, and just for the sake of killing, right? But the aim is to guide those human beings. So if, if, the, if the channels of communication are not open, how will you be able to guide them? Because there might be a cessation of hostilities. They might submit they enter into Islam you know what I'm saying you might conquer them they might conquer you so there has to always the channels of communication must always be open just want to uh, reiterate what the brother said in terms of com- keeping communication open in terms of uh, say like you have uh, I know in our mass there's, there's certain groups during the time of Eid El-Fitr they listen to music okay so brothers uh, some brothers have taken the position not to go they, they give us invitation but they say that you know we're going to have music so brothers have taken upon themselves not to attend. And also the Tablik Ijimad, when they come, is it, a, is it proper that we don't let them into the masjid or for them to speak? You know, what I mean being is you say the communication is over, even though we know, I'm not trying to get to attack certain groups, but we know that there might be some sayings with certain groups that we don't agree with, but some approaches have been taken towards these brothers not to let them in the masjid. When they come, all of the brothers leave, and they don't stay and listen. So is this a, you know, I just want to know, is this a proper? Well, I mean, you know, I mean, I would think that the Jema'at Jema'at is not worse than the Khawarij, those who the Prophet called the dogs of the hellfire and said that that to kill them there would be a reward until the day of judgment they're not worse than them and yet when the Khawarij appeared Adin Mubarak the Prophet's companion and the fourth of the Rasi Gadi Khulafa on the member of the Masum Kufa told them that you know you have three rights upon us to the Khawarij that we will not prevent you from the Masajid of Allah and that we will not prevent you from Al-Sayy which is the money or the, which the Muslims get as a result of jihad. Because they're participating with the Muslims in jihad, they have a right for that. And likewise, that we will not begin with you in, in fighting, you know, unless you start attacking us first. 
so if the, if the, if the sunnah of the Prophet's companions was not to prevent the khawatics in the Allah's message, you know, how much, you know, more so should we not prevent brothers who, even though we disagree with, I mean, are not on that level, like the Jamaat Tabir. Now, in terms of them speaking or giving their bayad and so forth, I mean, here is a question of the benefit and the harm. You know, that if the masjid is basically upon the sunnah and so forth, and so the people are being educated and are benefiting uh, and are not in need of this, then one might, you know, restrict that, okay? But if the situation is in the masjid where the people are in benefit of their talk, in the sense that the the hearts of the people who come to the masjid are, are, you know, in need of some sort of, you know, reminder of Prophet and the brothers who are giving dawah there, I mean, because of just the sheer numbers of who they're trying to give dawah to, cannot, you know, do it. So that this obviously for the people to move from a more, you know, I mean, like for instance, like you might imagine, I mean, the brothers from Jamaica they go out, they pull somebody out of a bar and bring him to the masjid, right? And what's worse for him? I mean, is it worse for him to be in the bar or is it worse for him to be in the masjid? I mean, obviously, they've brought him now to a better state. But for a brother who is following the sunnah for him to revert and go back, that's a more evil state. So, this has a situation there. I mean, the, the, the people who are there. I mean, if they're in a better state, then they shouldn't be, no door should be open to bring them to a worse state. But if they're in a worse state, and this is going to bring them to something better, they should be brought to something better by whatever means. And then the other issue I would think about uh, them is that to participate with them, for those who have knowledge, in other words, if they were to give a talk, somebody were to give another talk with them, so that they can learn and also. You know, I mean, in the sense that if they came to a masjid and they said that, well, we'd like to give, uh, you know, a talk for five minutes. I mean, normally their talks, you normally know what it is about. It's usually the same talk over and over, irrespective of where they come to. And for the most part, I mean, you know, irrespective, probably outside of the issue of them saying for you to come out with them, it's basically harmless because it says we should worship along, we should be, you know, pious and so forth. It's, it's, it's fine, I mean, in, in that respect. But the issue comes now that they're also in need of da'wah. And so sometimes if you, if you have an opportunity, you say, okay, well, you're going to give yourself a five-minute bayan. Also, the imam would like to dress all of us afterwards, and we want you to sit also. So make it hear something, you see? I mean, that would come to my mind. As, as far as the invitation for music, I mean, obviously, if it was a, if it was a celebration or so forth, and people were participating, Muslims shouldn't participate in something which is haram. Okay? But if there's going to be a group of Muslims who are celebrating Eid, and they have music, or they have, like, prisons, or women are not covered, you know, and a group of brothers go there with the purpose of giving them da'wah, then that's beneficial. But if you go there to participate, you know, then that's probably harmful. Now you mentioned the, the, uh, the hadith about Allah aiding his deen um, by the aid of a wicked man, a wicked person. Um, how do you figure, say, Louis Farrakhan in light of this hadith? Because after I heard someone mentioning this particular hadith in relation to Farrakhan and the Million Man March and the fact that because of the Million Man March, a number of people had actually accepted Islam. Okay, so that, that might be an example. I mean, I don't, I mean, I don't, I think it's important when you talk about hadith and, or anything in the Quran that you don't try to, you know, apply it to a principle like, you know, a situation unless you're very certain because, you know, this is, I mean, Allah's words are the Prophet's words. But, I mean, let's give an example. A person like Louis Farrakhan, who obviously is outside the fold of Islam, right? But he might, because he might do something, you know, uh, outrageous, so the kuffar 
in order to use him as an example of a Muslim to attack Islam, bring him to the media, right? And somebody hears about Islam and says, well, let me investigate into this and accept Islam. I mean, this is, this is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala decreed for this. This is a benefit that Allah has brought. It's just like now when they, you know, make these movies calling, you know, Muslims terrorists and so forth, right? People, you know, sometimes want to know, say, well, these people are so, you know, let me find out something about them. And they, you know, get a Quran and they read it and then they find it the truth and they accept Islam. But that wouldn't, of course, mean that we should encourage people to make movies, you know, depicting Muslims as terrorists, right? So, I mean, I mean, this hadith could be applicable, you know what I'm saying? But, I mean, whether it's applicable or not, I don't think that's the issue. I mean, the issue is that obviously the man is, you know, misrepresenting Islam, and a large number of people judge Islam based upon his teachings, and also a large number of people follow his teachings thinking this is the religion of Islam. And so it's a, it's a, it's a fitna for the unbelievers and it's a fitna for his followers. And so as a result, I mean, you know, he has, you have to warn against him and teach people the correct message of Islam. Uh, there appears to be two sides in terms of the laymen staying on top of the current affairs. Uh-huh. One group says, you know, don't even worry about it at all. Another group says you should read three, four newspapers a day, Time Magazine and Newsweek. What should be the proper balance for the layman in front of current affairs? Well, as much as the layman is affected by current affairs. I mean, you know, these people, I haven't found, you know, I mean, really in, in any numbers of people, and, you know, perhaps they could say, well, you know, your exposure is limited, and I would agree to that. Uh, a group of people saying that the extreme you have to read three, four newspapers a day and so forth. You know, I, I really haven't found in reality people existing calling to that. Okay. But let's say for the sake of argument that there are. Obviously, that would not be in a thing. But what I have found is people who go to the other extremists. You shouldn't read any newspaper, you shouldn't listen to any news broadcast and so forth. You find these in large numbers and they attribute this concept to Dawah Salafiyah. I want to ask a question now. If it was something dealing with their personal interest, like the money in their pocket or their health, would they not then follow the news concerning that? You see what I'm saying? So what about things that affect their religion, affect their faith, affect their fellow believers? Should they not be concerned about that? I mean, let's imagine that
So let's imagine now that you know, in a city, these Muslims are living in a major city, and the water treatment plant of that city breaks down. And you, know, you have to sort of follow the news in order to know what type of you know, precautions you must take concerning the water. And would these people be following the news in this case? They probably would. Okay. So, if this is the situation regarding that thing, then what about ideas and trends and so forth? You want to now go give da'wah to a group of Muslim teenagers. If you don't know what the influences are in their life, how can you effectively you know, bring them Islam? I mean, you know, I, I tell you personally, I have no idea what type of ideas and, you know, music that, uh, you know, teenagers now are listening to or what type of, you know, is going on in their mind. I mean, I remember for maybe my generation, okay, some 20 years ago, all right, but for this generation, I have no idea. So how would I be effectively able to, you know, talk to these children and so forth? So now we're talking about, let's say now we want to now talk to humanity on a large scale. You know what I'm saying? You're giving da'wah to a large group of humanity. Isn't it now required for you to be able to know what are the different influences and ideas and movements and perceptions and powers and so forth that, that, are, that, that people are you know, being affected to in their lives? Of course. And so therefore, the amount of your knowledge, right, regarding these matters is to the amount of your contact with those matters, right, and also to the amount of your activity in trying to spread Allah's religion. Those who are in a lot of contact need to know a lot. Those who want to talk to large audiences need to know what. Those who want to change the world and change the ummah, right? They need to be on top of everything in order to do that. Right? This seems to be this, you know, the balanced response. And I mean, the discussion needs more. I think it's time for salah. So uh, to close this, subhanahu wa alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.